Um, make sure you've turned in your Bibles uh, to the uh, ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And it's been so long since I've been here uh, that for some of you, you don't know sort of what's happening. We're doing the writings of Paul, and we're in the Corinthian writings. And I made it clear that Paul didn't write anything. He spoke out to a man that would have been in a room with him called an amanuensis. He was like a scholar, really, who could write down on a scroll all that Paul was saying. And so just to try to get your, your imagination working here, Paul's in a room. He's answering letters from a church that he founded, the Corinthian church. And uh, he, some of these problems they're having in the church are pretty serious, and he has to answer these problems in a way that they will understand. And so we have to be careful when we're reading that we try to understand their culture and what's happening where they are. And starting in chapter 8, uh, we have a picture of, uh, of, uh, of some wrong eating habits. In other words, they were going to pagan temples and purchasing meat that was dedicated to idols. And uh, they didn't see anything wrong with that, but Paul did see a lot wrong with it. And so uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10, and the first verse of chapter 11 all go together. And to divide it up, even as I already have, makes it a little bit more difficult to understand. So I'll work hard at trying to help us to see the application for our personal lives in all of this. So to sum up the last teaching before I went on vacation, I will quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and then verse 13, and it'll start to give you an idea of how we put this all together. It reads this way. Now, about food, sacrifice to idols. Let me just ask you, have you all stopped eating food, sacrifice to idols after the last sermon? I hope so. <laughs> Therefore... If what I eat, Paul says, causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause that him or her to fall. So Paul here, remember he's answering some questions in a letter that we don't have. So we've only got one side of the conversation. But he erupts here into fiery speech. It's called rhetoric. I mean, Paul is, I think it's okay for me to say this, ticked off. He really is. I mean, 18 months he taught every day in Corinth. He founded the church. Almost everyone attending was led to the Lord directly or indirectly by Paul's personal ministry. And now some have infiltrated the church and are leading people astray, not only with false teaching and unbiblical rules, but they're even questioning Paul's authority. So Paul is about to demonstrate how he lives his life with the gospel in mind, considering those who need to understand with clarity how the gospel changes one's life. Paul had already written the Corinthians, and forbidden their attendance at the pagan temples. But they knew that Paul himself ate the meat served to him when he ate with Gentiles. That doesn't shock us at all, but it would shock a Jew in that day. Also, since Paul was not receiving any money, any support from the Corinthians, there were some in Corinth who were questioning Paul's authority as an apostle and maybe even questioning whether he was an apostle at all. 
And you'll see in a moment why I've called the sermon freedom, freedom. So look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Remember, Paul's not happy. Am I not free? In other words, from the sermon last time, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols or not? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord, and I'm adding to it here, who personally commissioned me as an apostle to the Gentiles, which was most of you in Corinth? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, a seal authenticated something. Uh, the church in Corinth was the seal, the proof of Paul's apostleship in the Lord. Now, uh, Paul talks of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, who is God, in our lives, which is the authentication of God's ownership and guarantee of our glorification in heaven. And we see it in the book of Ephesians in Paul's writings, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul says, and we're to take this very personally, this is important, having believed, like how do you become a Christian? What do you have to do? You have to believe. Believe what? Believe Jesus. Believe everything he said. And so having believed that you've done that, you are marked in him with a seal, you see there's the word, the promised Holy Spirit. And then it says in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So all of us have the Holy Spirit, and he, God, the Holy Spirit, is the seal of our salvation so that we can never lose it and that we can learn what the Scriptures have to say and what God's will is in our lives. So now look at verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we, meaning him and, him and the other apostles, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's another word for Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Now, we must understand that as Christians, we're free to do most anything we want if we're being controlled by the Spirit of God. You've heard people talk about, are you filled with the Spirit? The, the word filled means controlled. Are you controlled by the Spirit of God? But the best way to express that freedom, to show the difference between Christian liberty and the world's idea of, I do it my way. Or, I'll do whatever I want to do. The best way to express this difference is that we Christians are free not to do what we want or what is permissible for the sake of others. We are free not to sin. And we're free not to exercise our freedom. Now, that's revolutionary. I mean, that is otherworldly. You see, the problem here may be that some in Corinth were still having a problem with the radical nature of what it means to truly be a Christian. They thought that it was demeaning 
for Paul or any other so-called apostle to work in a trade. Paul was a tent maker to support themselves. They thought that was wrong. After all, the pagan philosophers and speakers would never have done this, so Paul should not be working either. He was being judged by that standard. So Paul is making a strong point that he is free to receive money or support from the Corinthians or free to work, free not to work, as we have seen, or free to receive support. Well, I think it'll come together. Stick with me. Verse 7, so here are some examples he gives. For instance, Paul says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Well, you know, I was in the Navy, and I didn't pay to be in the Navy. They even paid me. <laughs> or who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? The answer is obvious. Who tends a flock of sheep and goats and does not drink the milk? So Paul has every right to expect his needs to be met by the church in Corinth that he, as an apostle, founded. Now, just to be clear, the rabbis of the day were well-known for their sly methods of prospering as they profited from their ministry. And sometimes we see TV evangelists whose phone numbers are more prominent than their message. Paul was making certain that no one would ever accuse him of taking advantage of his ministry to personally prosper. So verse 8, do I say this merely on human authority? Of course not. Doesn't the law, the law, that's the Old Testament books, the word of God, the authority of God, doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in Deuteronomy 25.4, in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while he is treading out the grain. So the, 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 the ox is pulling a heavy load, a plow behind it, and it gets to eat some of the grain to keep, the, uh, to keep the, its strength up while it's pulling, like I do with my water bottle on my bike and put it back down in the cage and keep going. That's the picture. The ox is to be allowed to take care of himself that way. And in verse 10, it says, surely he says this. In other words, surely God says this. Moses wrote this uh, for us. For us, doesn't he? Yes, it was written for us. Why? Well, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Now, what Paul is saying, he's setting, he's setting this up for... A purpose. Now, now, here is something we're thinking about for a moment or two. Paul's use of the Old Testament. I've always been concerned that Christians don't know enough of the Old Testament. That's why I started in Genesis last Wednesday and why we're going to do the five things on evolution and creation and get the biblical worldview fully understood. And I want us to be reminded of how necessary the Old Testament is. We will learn in 1 Corinthians 10, as we did last Wednesday, that what is written in the Old Testament scriptures has been written as examples to teach us or to warn us. We need the Old Testament. So here we have an Old Testament example 
of how oxen were sustained while they worked, and Paul lets us know that we can use the same analogy as an example of how God desires to sustain us through our work. In Paul's case, his work is the gospel. We have to keep that in mind. This is between Paul and the Christians in Corinth. So if God provided for oxen to be properly taken care of as they work, would we not expect those who minister to others to be taken care of too? It's just obvious, isn't it? Paul is not trying to be profound here. He is more concerned that he be understood. Therefore, he keeps things simple, obvious. So here is Paul's obvious conclusion, verse 11. If we, himself and the other apostles, have sown spiritual seed among you Corinthians, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's obvious. Again, Paul is pointing out, now this is it, Paul is pointing out a right he has, but a right he has also freely given up. See verse 12 still? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ, the good news about Jesus. You see, Paul's passion was the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul was more concerned with how others received him as a gospel preacher than with his own rights. He wasn't obligated to anyone. Some may preach the gospel even for wrong motives, for money. But Paul was willing to work on his own, endure suffering if necessary, so he could preach the gospel freely without his motives being judged. No one was going to be able to say that Paul preached the gospel for personal gain, even though he had every right to be given money or sustenance while preaching in the good, the good news. And he offers further proof of that in verse 13. He's really building this up here for a a purpose. Verse 13, don't you know, now you already know if you've been listening to me preach for long, that every time it says in Paul's writings, don't you know, it's saying, you know this, don't you? I mean, this is obvious. Don't you know that those who served in the temple, whether the pagan temple or Jewish temple, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? That's just the way it is in that culture. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should, or it could be, you could translate it, could receive their living from the gospel. And then he quotes a proverbial saying of Jesus uh, in, in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew. Jesus is sending out, in one case, 72, two by two to go out, and he's sending out 12 in another case. And in, uh, uh, one of the, in Luke, it says, Jesus said, for the worker deserves his wages. And then in Matthew 10.10, 10, uh, Jesus said, for the worker is worth his keep. So this next section feels almost 
breathless as Paul proceeds with his argument. Now remember, some in Corinth were not happy that Paul had forbidden them to go into the pagan temple to purchase or eat the meat. So they were questioning the authority of Paul. Paul is using his own situation as an example of having and giving up rights. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights, Paul says. I could have, but I didn't. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you'll do uh, such things for me. In other words, I'm not writing this so that I can get you to give me a whole bunch of money. For I would rather die. Now, the way this is written in the grammar of the Greek, it's like this. It would be something like this. Imagine he's walking back and forth, and, and the, the amanuensis is writing this down using all of the grammar rules he can to make sure that it comes across with the right attitude so they understand. And so he now says, for I would rather die, and then it's as if he took a deep breath, than have anyone deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast for I am compelled to preach. It's a powerful picture here, an inner compulsion, an obligation, a destiny. This is what Paul was saved to do. And then he says, almost like a whale, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul regularly pointed out that he was a slave the words doulos in Greek, and it literally means a slave that's owned or a servant of Jesus Christ, a joy-filled calling true of all of us in some form. And in verse 17, he says, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. In other words, he's saying that this is his duty. I read of a missionary doctor who worked among lepers in Africa, and he was telling some of his friends about the unpleasant conditions he had to work in. His patients would come in with running sores that were so putrid and foul that he could barely stand to be around them. Uh, these patients were often totally ungrateful uh, for what the doctor tried to do. A lady listening to him said, well, you must love these people tremendously to go out and serve them the way you do. And he said, no, I don't. It isn't love. I find it very difficult to love somebody who reeks of a horrible odor. I would much rather walk away and leave them there to die in their filth. It is not love. Well, she said, then what is it? Duty, he replied. When I read that illustration, it really bothered me until I read this written by a, the person that presented the illustration. There's nothing wrong with a sense of duty. There's nothing wrong with the feeling that God has given you a job to do and you have to do it whether you like it or not. Many of us are uneasy with that kind of a motivation, but Paul felt it. He said, there is no choice for me in the matter of preaching. Whether I like it or not, I have a commission to fulfill, and I want my life to be worth anything. If I want my life to be worth anything at all, I had better do it. That drives him out to preach, this writer says. But that, he says, is not the reason why he does it without charge. 
why he earns his own living making tents so that no one else will have to support him. What is the reason? Well, that's what verse 18 is all about. Look at verse 18. What then is my reward, Paul says. He's really calmed down now. It's just this. The preaching of the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying his reward was that he didn't get a reward. Oh, I know about heavenly rewards, but that's not what he's talking about here. But more importantly, Paul demonstrates a lifestyle of giving up that which is even very good for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. So certainly to give up that which is permissible, eating meat in the temple, or the list I came up with a few weeks ago when we did that of all of the things, whether you can go to a movie or watch this or do those various things. Uh, so uh, it, it, makes much more, it makes much more sense now. Paul has, was demanding his right to give up his rights. They didn't get it. And so he says, it's as if we went back to verse 1, verse 19. So look in your Bibles, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I make myself a slave, a servant to everyone to win as many as possible. You see, freedom is not Paul's goal. Salvation of others through the gospel is his goal. And Paul uses the word win here, to win as many as possible. He uses that word five times. It's actually a word that means to make a large profit on an investment. He has no desire to retire on a desert island and live out his remaining years free of worry. He intends to live out his years as God's slave, as God's servant, and if necessary, as anyone else's servant or slave, so as to point them to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There's a movement that I read about many years ago that just amazed me. In the church in China, there's a movement where individuals enter Islamic countries and then preach publicly so they can be arrested and beaten and put in prison. They do this on purpose so that they don't have to raise support and they find the other prisoners are very open to the gospel. When I read that some years ago, there's a book written about it. I asked myself, would I be willing to do that? I wasn't sure how to answer. Now, is that not what our Lord and Savior Jesus did for us? He gave up his freedom to be enslaved in a human body. We call that the incarnation. That's Christmas time. And he took on our sins, which he certainly didn't deserve, so we could spend eternity with him in heaven. There's a verse for that, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace, grace means unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve. So you know the grace of our Lord, whose name is Jesus, who's the Messiah, that though he was rich... Now, let's stop just a moment. Try to get uh, the categories out of your mind. When we think of rich, we think of big houses, all that kind of thing. You can't even imagine, I can't even imagine what it would be like. I can only try to, but I can't really, to be in heaven with God. He left. Whatever, whatever you could imagine being the richest, most wonderful lifestyle you could ever live is nothing 
compared to what Jesus gave up. And so though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. He became a a human being so that we, through his poverty, might become rich, and it's not talking about money. So now Paul gives some examples of how he acts in various social situations. Uh, This was probably based on behavior that others had complained about. So verse 20, he says, to the Jews... I became like a Jew to win the Jews, he says. When he was with the Jews, he ate kosher. When he was with the Gentiles, he didn't. To those under the law, he says, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as when to win those under the law. Now, when he says he's not under the law himself, that doesn't mean that he ignores the commands of the law. It's still wrong to have other gods before God. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to steal all of the commandments. But he, he's talking about the, the law was a picture to show us what we could not accomplish on our own so that we would turn to God. It was the mirror that demonstrated how sinful we were. So Paul, though, had no problem keeping days various days, Sabbath, all that, and eating kosher to be able to associate with his Jewish friends to win them to Christ. They kept these laws under a sense of religious obligation, a legalism that they were bound by, but Paul was only keeping them to have a platform to tell them about Jesus, who was their Messiah. And in verse 21, he says, to those not having the law, he's talking about Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. There's a great picture of this. I'm pretty sure I used it last time. I can't remember. I think I did. Uh, Where Peter is at Simon the Tanner's house. He's up on the roof of the house because he's hungry and he's praying and a blanket comes down with all of this non-kosher food and the voice says, kill and eat. And he says, no way, I would never do that. I'm a good Jew. I would never, ever do that. Three times the blanket had to come down. Then there's a knock on the door, and it's a Gentile soldier sent by a commander uh, to come to his house because they wanted to hear Paul's message. And so Paul went there and went in and ate their food and, and was part of their uh, lives after realizing now that why he saw that, and they all became Christians. So to those not having the law, verse 21, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law. None of us are. I mean, we're still being judged by it, but we, Jesus has died for our sins, and so that judgment keep, doesn't keep us out of heaven. So I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, and Christ's law, very simply put, is the law of love. So as to win those not having the law. And then he says to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I know I've used this before, but when I was a stockbroker in uh, London, Ontario, uh, I was part of an office. It was one of the most successful offices in the country. And we were like a team of guys together in that office. And we encouraged each other and helped one another. And, and then I became a believer. And uh, I sort of tried to straighten everybody else out. 
And so the guys had a meeting and they decided that I needed to leave, which would have been a catastrophe. And then I realized that what I had done was wrong. And so I went to each one of them individually and took them out to dinner to an expensive restaurant. They took maximum advantage of me, ordered extra bottles of wine and everything else. And I told them that I had become a Christian and that's not going to change, but I'm sorry for the way I acted and I hope they'd forgive me. Uh, Dougie Weber, he was the last one. He used to be a football coach and he was the, the real ringleader. And so he ordered more food and stuff, even takeout, and really <laughs> put the bill up. And, uh, and then at the end, I said, I want to if you forgive me. He says, I couldn't care less what you do. He says, I think it's all foolishness. He says, but I just admire the, your courage that you've come and done this so you can stay. And then later on, not only did one of the five become a really strong Christian, but later on, Dougie himself came into my office one day in tears because his wife and his child had been diagnosed with cancer. His first question was, how could your God allow this to happen? And we have one of the best conversations about the gospel that I've ever had. That's what Paul is talking about here. He became part of them. He didn't do anything wrong. He just became part of them, and they knew he cared about them. And so in verse 23, uh, we have motive. Verse 23, Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in the gospel blessings. So here's a question. Think about this. Is there a larger blessing than being part of seeing a life headed for hell turned around to enjoy the blessings of heaven now and forever. There's no larger blessing than that. So Paul finishes with my favorite biblical exhortation toward a persevering, self-disciplined Christian life. And some of you know that this has to do with my hashtag, for those of you that know what that is and all of that. Verse 24, Paul says, do you not know? In other words, he's saying, you know this. This is pretty obvious. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run, he says, in such a way as to get the prize. So Paul compares our lives to a race, but be careful with this picture. We're not competing with one another as we run the race together. We're not necessarily running just to win first place. Our prize is better than that, as we'll see in just a minute. Paul was thinking about, everybody would have known what he's talking about, the Isthmian Games held every two years. And uh, it had uh, racing, wrestling, jumping, boxing, hurling, javelin, uh, throwing the discus. The athletes were required to train in a prescribed way for 10 months. They were required to do that. And those who did not complete the strict training were disqualified completely from the games. And it was a real shame. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading a book that's not a Christian book. It's a book about working out. <laughs> I've just read this this morning. I put this together a week ago. I read this this morning. Uh, the writer writes, he's not even remotely a Christian, a contestant in the Ismian Games had to declare on oath before Zeus that he had been training for at least 10 months. And competition evoked not so much the niceties of the modern playing field as the dangers of the ancient battlefield. 
wrestling, boxing, javelin throws, chariot races, and the, it's a Greek word, the hoplidromus, a race in full battle armor. Losers and victors could be maimed, disfigured, and even killed. The games were a reflection of life, and like life, they were brutal. That's what Paul is thinking about here. Therefore, in verse 25, that really brings it alive. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will not last. It's just made of flowers and stuff. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. You see, only one wins the race and gets the crown, but for us, we all can finish well and receive a crown that will last forever. Let's not forget, this all started with the question, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And then I made an arbitrary list last time. Biblically, we are free to do whatever we desire, but there's a caveat. As long as we are being controlled by God's Holy Spirit, and I would add, as long as we have our eye on the ultimate goal, Paul is telling us how our view of the end is to affect the way we live in the present. So Paul now applies all this to himself, trusting that his readers will get the point. Verse 26, therefore, he says to the Corinthians, to us, therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. You see, a runner has a goal. What's the goal? The finish line. Paul had a goal to win others for Christ. I did a race one time a lot of years ago called the Orange Avenue Mile, and the street was all empty, and you could see the end, and the way they did it is they lined you up uh, two at a time. There were big flags. You could see the end one mile away. There it was, straight on. And all the flags were up, and all kinds of people were there. And then you were lined up two by two as you went along. You weren't racing against the person on the other side of the road. You didn't even care who that was. You were racing against yourself. There would be an ultimate prize. Somebody would be the fastest. But the point was to get to the end of that mile as fast as you can get to the end of that mile. And so when the uh, gun went off, and yeah, they had a gun, they shot it off, and we, I took off. This is a lot of years ago, 5.35 was my time. And uh, as I'm heading, the, I'm looking at the goal, I'm looking at the goal, and the closer I get the goal, the harder I push because I know that it's coming. And when I went over the goal, I just totally collapsed. Pretty well, everybody did. That, that's really a picture of the Christian life. It's actually a good picture. It's not a bad picture. Uh, Paul says, I don't fight like a man beating the air. Shadow boxing is a good thing until one steps into the ring. Paul doesn't shadow box in the ring with his opponent. That would be foolish. He strikes out to knock out. Strikes out to knock out. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. He was, Paul was in shape, not just physically. He, was, he had to be, if you read all about what he had to endure. And then here's what I like to call my life verse. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself may be disqualified for the prize. The word disqualified is the scary word here. Scary word. Now, I hope no one here thinks this means we all must go to the gym to work out. As good of an idea that might be, it is certainly not what Paul is picturing. 
I also hope that no one here sees this as some ascetic lifestyle where we all give up everything of the world and live like medieval monks, or worse, try to earn our salvation that way. That's also not what Paul is picturing. Paul is saying we all must be disciplined and goal-centered regardless of the difficulties life circumstances might throw at us. In other words, when you wake up every morning, you need to have already had a plan for your day. God may interfere with it, but that's okay. We all need to have a life goal. I used to do a thing on goal setting, and I've done it in the church years ago here. And the, uh, the first thing I would say is all of us need a life goal, a life purpose. And the best way to get that is to pretend you're at your own memorial service and write what other people are going to say about you. And, and it'll change as life moves along, but we need to have a purpose in life, and the purpose in life is to live out the gospel. Our personal discipline should defeat laziness, overindulgence, or any practice that would derail our lives from drugs to alcohol to overeating or simply just letting life circumstances control us rather than God's purposes. What he is picturing is a people who have a goal of winning others to Christ and an attitude towards life that will give up any good thing for the sake of others. So Paul has taken us back to the last two, three, four weeks ago sermon, 1 Corinthians 8.13. He wrote, therefore, if what I eat or where I go or what I do causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never do any of those things again so that I will not cause anyone to fall. So may I suggest that love is our ultimate goal. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Jesus said that, as a matter of fact. In the book of Galatians, in the Message Bible, it talks about freedom. Listen to this. Galatians 5, 13, 14, and 15. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love, and that's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? So finally, let us live our lives in such a way that any so-called sacrifice we may experience here during this short time on earth will be nothing compared to the profit to our heavenly accounts because of those we have won for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. Thank you that... God, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son to die for our sins so that we would never perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've already sung about the resurrection, Father, and it's just 
always moves me every time I think about it. Jesus rose from the dead as the victor over sin, and now we can have victory over sin. Help us to not live for ourselves, but as we do live, to live with others in mind, to be willing to give up any temporal privilege so that someone else could know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we have so many great examples in our missionaries in this church and in many people who are before me right now who are literally living their lives for Jesus in such a way that others are asking them about the reason for the hope that is within them. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning or anyone online who has never given their life to Jesus, that today would be the day they step over that line into the kingdom of God and they would believe that Jesus is God and that he's the only way to heaven and that we're all sinners and we all need a savior. And Father, I just pray that if anyone here has not done that, that they would just say a simple prayer saying, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I know I can't do it on my own. Thank you for doing it for me. Come into my life and change me. And Father, if we say that, regardless how stumbling our words may be, you'll always save that person and their lives will change completely. In Jesus' name, amen.